Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 7th, 2017, and this episode of Econ Talk is being recorded in front of a live audience in Washington, D.C., in honor of the 40th anniversary of the Cato Institute. Our topic is the past, present, and future of liberty, and to talk about it, we have three special guests. Guests, David Bowes is Executive Vice President of the Cato Institute and the author of The Libertarian Mind, Manifesto for Freedom, and the editor of The Libertarian Reader. David, welcome to Econ Talk. P.J. O'Rourke is the author of numerous books, including the New York Times number one bestseller, Give War a Chance. His latest book is How the Hell Did This Happen? The Election of 2016. P.J., welcome to Econ Talk. And George Will is a Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, author of numerous books. And according to Wikipedia, he's not only been referenced uh, in Doonesbury, Saturday Night Live, and Seinfeld, but he is a former guest of Econ Talk in 2011. George, welcome back to Econ Talk. So I want to start with the state of liberty in America. Uh, is the glass half full or half empty? David, why don't you lead us off? We talked uh, yesterday about whether this is a short-term or long-term question. In the long term, I'm still very optimistic about the future of liberty because liberty works and socialism and central planning and indeed fascism uh, do not. And so I'm optimistic. In the short term, we have a lot more liberty than we did 40 years ago in a lot of ways. A lot of New Deal regulations were eliminated. You and I remember that the draft was a real threat when we were 21, and now it is not. That's a good thing. Uh, there's been a lot of liberation in, in terms of civil rights, women's rights, gay rights. All of that is good. Uh, marginal tax rates came down um, and went back up a little, but not so much. Still. We have apparently an out-of-control welfare state in most uh, developed economies. And today we're seeing new threats from what could in some way be called right-wing authoritarian populism. Uh, We're seeing it in France. We have seen it in other places in Europe. And there were elements of that in the Trump movement. We thought the Republican base was Reaganite, which for a libertarian is not quite perfect, but at least on free markets and free trade, it's supposed to be a good thing. It turns out the Republican uh, base was perfectly willing to vote for a determined protectionist. So lots of new threats to deal with in the next few years. PJ? I would essentially uh, uh, agree with, with David, except that I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't call it a right-wing authoritarianism that we're, we're going through. I think you'll see it all over the political spectrum. I think Bernie Sanders was an example of the same sort of thing from the left. It's also, at least in, in, in the debriefings and interviews and so on, that I have done with people who voted for, I found very few people who voted for Trump. I have discovered a huge number of people who voted against Hillary. Uh, so, um, I can understand the, the, the conundrum myself. Actually, I, in the end, because I was in a swing state and my vote conceivably did matter, my wife and I talked about this, we voted for Hillary because of the VIX. Those of you in the financial industry know the volatility index, the measurement of fear. I just I figured we could live through another four years of the eight years we'd lived through. 
and I just didn't know what I what this guy was going to do. And uh, so in the end, I, I voted for I made I made the safe vote for the ugly status quo to, versus you know the devil I didn't know. Uh, but I you know I do think we're we're generally moving in the right direction, but. The alarms of the modern world, as I was talking about earlier today, are such that they tend to drive people toward those who claim that they can fix things, they can run things. The, the strong man, strong person, it is now phenomenon. Uh, let's hope nothing goes horribly wrong in France uh, 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 tomorrow. But we see that rise of authoritarianism. It reminds us just enough of the period between the First and Second World Wars, which was the absolute most horrible bottom of the pit period in, in, in the rise of authoritarianism. There is just enough echo from that. You know, history repeating itself is farce, I suppose. Let's hope it remains a farce. Just enough echo of that to put my nerves on edge. George? What this uh, conversation needs is a good, robust pessimism, and I'm here, to, <laughs> I'm here to be the wet blanket at this movable feast. I subscribe to the Ohio in 1895 theory of history, so named by me for the little-known fact that in Ohio in 1895 there were two automobiles, and they collided. Uh, when Earl Weaver was managing the Baltimore Orioles, he was a short, irascible, dyspeptic, Napoleonic little figure. And when he was out of sorts, as he always was by the third inning, he was the scourge of American League umpires. He'd come barreling out of the dugout, stick his chin into the chest of a much larger umpire, and shout, are you going to get any better, or is this it? Uh, this is it. Uh, we see on, uh, on American campuses, and we know that what happens on campus doesn't stay on campus. We see on campus a, a rising generation of, of extremely badly parented young people who uh, really do not like the First Amendment. And when it goes, everything goes. Uh, we have a, a nation, it's been 60, 70 years now since Laswell and some other political scientists diagnosed the fact that the American people are ideologically conservative, meaning libertarian, but uh, operationally uh, liberal, meaning statist. And I've, uh, this seems to me this has gone on and de demonstrated what they argued 60 years ago. Uh, the, the American people uh, talk like Jeffersonians, insist upon being governed by Hamiltonians, a large, omnipresent, omniprovident welfare state, they are loss-averse, which is to say once they've got something, they're not going to give it up. Uh, case in point, the Affordable Care Act, they really don't want now. The, the Affordable Care Act has never been more popular than it is today because people said, well, we've got it and let's keep it. So, um, as I say, my, my role here is to uh, shoot down any little ray of sunshine. Well, uh, I'm going to pile on. I'm going to pile on and I'll let... PJ and David uh, react accordingly if, if they wish. So, David, you pointed out marginal tax rates have come down, but government hasn't gotten any smaller. Government continues to get larger. The nanny state continues to be more uh, intrusive. Um, economics gets, as you say, the welfare state 
and various regulations. Some have gone away. Some have, you know, one of the, the costs of this is that everything that is bad about the current system is blamed on markets, even though if it's not a market process. So the fact that United once dragged a passenger off a plane with federal agents is an indictment of deregulation now. I've actually read things like that, or that airline travel is so horrible because it's just cheap. Uh, so, or the healthcare system proves that markets don't work when, of course, we've managed to remove almost every bit of market process that could, could be there to start with. So uh, on, the, on the facts, I think it's a tough argument that the glass is half full. Do you want to push back against that? Well, look, it depends on where the glass started and what you're comparing it to. Compared to most of human history and most of the world today, the glass is at least half full in the United States of America. And I ask people sometimes, it's, it's a common thing, and it's even sort of in Cato's boilerplate that goes on side of all our books. Since the American Revolution, our liberties have eroded. Well, at the time of the American Revolution, we had slavery. So I'd say, on balance, better off today. Um, what is the other period, the 1950s, when so many kinds of people were excluded from the political and social and economic mainstream? Not such a good time. Uh, the 1950s also had all this New Deal regulation that we did wipe away a lot of, even though we added more. So I think there is way too much government, and I could spend this whole hour talking about the nanny state. On the other hand, when you say nanny state, Early in the United States, there were a few states that still had state churches. That's an anti-state. We had sodomy laws. We had Jim Crow. All of those things, much worse manifestations of the nanny state than the fact that they're regulating our light bulbs as outrageous as telling us what light bulbs and toilets we can buy is. Peter, do you want to add anything? Well, I'm afraid whatever little glimmer of optimism I did have, George pretty well took care of. <laughs> I do, I do. Again, I agree, I agree with David, and I think in, in terms of, of, of personal individual liberty, um, we are uh, in personal individual, you know, if we, if we hold the, 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 the three uh, 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 branches of the uh, of the libertarian menorah uh, to be individual liberty, individual dignity, and uh, individual responsibility. We're doing pretty well on the dignity front. You know, there's no doubt. I mean, it's nothing dignified about being uh, 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 someone's chattel or not being able to vote, or uh, and so I'm doing pr pretty well there. Um, uh, on the individual responsibility branch. Uh oh, uh oh. Yeah, I just you know, and and the the thing that truly frightens me about the growth of the state, and the intrusion of the state uh, 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 into every little corner of of life is, I don't see its stopping point. A mathematician friend of mine, when I was moaning about something years ago, once told me, "Well, all curves are self-limited, self are self-limiting by nature." Uh, well, I flunked math. Uh, and <laughs> I just don't see where this curve limits itself, or if it does limit itself, it limits itself in some sort of uh, crisis, and one never wishes for a crisis. You know, e even if the crisis involves entitlement programs that I wish would go away, you don't wish for a crisis based on those entitlement programs getting out of hand. So, I, yeah, I really, I am more uh, worried than, 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 than pleased overall. I just want to say that I, I'm pretty sure 
that this is the first time that the word menorah has been used on EconTalk. And it was not used by the Jewish host, but by P.J. O'Rourke. So, P.J., that was really, um, that was special. Um, let's... I think we need to make a distinction. Uh, when you talk about gay rights and integration of American society and a less colorblind, a more colorblind society, that means America is nicer than it used to be. And I think that's true. But uh, you can be nicer in many ways without being freer. Uh, Maybe it's a good trade-off. Maybe we should say niceness is as important as being free, and uh, certainly an arguable position. But marginal tax rates, for example, I mean, they were 35, but no one was paying 35. The corporate tax rate today is 35, but the average corporation pays about 25, unless you're Boeing and General Electric pay nothing. Uh, so that that seems to me a weak measure of the status of liberty in, in society. Well, let me just point out that marginal tax rates were 70. And no one paid them either, because <laughs> with, you had then a robust industry of tax avoidance, good sure. tax shelters and all the rest, which skewed the allocation of resources and in society. And everything was deductible. Right, every, that's right. So, so yes. what you did is you empowered, and, and it was a jobs program for lawyers and accountants. Well, that's true, but as Russ would point out, Spending lots of effort in tax avoidance is bad for the economy, and it's an infringement on your freedom. You're right about nicer, but it's more than just nicer. We got rid of the restrictions of Jim Crow. Those were legal restrictions. With women, there were also various kinds of legal restrictions. And, you know, I think if we go back now and we look at what were the things that, that uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was suing about as an activist lawyer, I tend to think of her as a statist interventionist. But you look at the things she was suing about, there were things like women couldn't open a bank account without their husband's signature. So that's not just niceness. That is an expansion of freedom. And obviously for gay people, the fact that they were excluded from marriage, they were actually subject to arrest for engaging in sexual activity, all of those things, in some sense, the niceness preceded the legal changes, but it is freedom as well. So we not only get menorah, we get a pro-Ruth Bader Ginsburg comment at the Cato Institute. I mean, it's an awesome day. Uh, <clears throat> I, want to turn, I want to turn to a cultural issue uh, that we've mainly talked about, size of government. And one thing I've noticed, um, and my libertarian awakening occurred a few blocks from here. In 1976, I was reading The Machinery of Freedom by David Friedman. And he said, you know, you should, if you want to get involved, you should he gave a list of things you could do, and one of them was to get involved with the Libertarian Party. And I noticed that it was about three blocks away on P Street off of DuPont Circle. And I walked over there, and I walked in. There were two people stuffing envelopes. One of them was Tom Palmer, who's a wonderful uh, contributor to Liberty here at, at Cato and has been for a long time. So my journey, in this intellectual journey, is, is about 40 years old also, and over that 40 years, one thing I've noticed is that our ideas are semi-respectable. They were not 40 years ago. They were not. Uh, most of the people in the movement then were weird people, like me, uh, and were socially uh, weird and uncomfortable. And now we have lots of normal people in the movement who are thoughtful and intellectual and wise. And it's okay to be a free market, libertarian, whatever you want to call it, classical liberal, mostly. But that's the world we live in, what depresses me is how little that's translated into results. It's to me the equivalent of people list 
Atlas Shrugged is their, the most influential book in their lives, and then you wonder how we have s- such statist uh, results in our public policy. So I want you to reflect, if you would, on uh, this cultural change that our ideas have made it into the mainstream to some extent, but don't necessarily seem to translate into uh, political action. And is that any cause for hope or, or sadness? Gentlemen, who'd like to comment on that? Anybody? Okay. I, th- um, I think you're right, and it's very frustrating to a lot of us. Um, we hear all the nonsense on campus today, but when I was at Vanderbilt, not an especially left-wing campus, in the 1970s, I was not aware of a single libertarian or conservative professor. That would not be true today at, I think, any campus. So there has been that kind of change, and you're right. There are more libertarians or classical liberals with access to the national media and things than there were in the 1970s, and yet not a lot of change hasn't happened. Part of it is what George said, that political scientists find. If you ask the American people, is government too big? Do you think government interferes too much in your life? You get pretty strong majorities say yes. If you ask, do you think the government should do more for health care, more for transportation, more for education, more to help women, more to help children, um, then you get large majorities for all of those things. So there is this disconnect. What is your definition of government is too big? Um, On the other hand, there is still, I believe, a libertarian core in America that makes us one of the freest countries in the world, one of the countries in the world with the most libertarian culture. On the Economic Freedom Index and the Human Freedom Index, the United States has dropped. It's in the top 20 instead of the top 5 or 10. Um, But still, one of the things that strikes me over the past few years, and this is where economics is is harder to change, but not only is there the gay rights uh, advances and the marijuana legalization that's finally slowly moving, But, you know, we've had a lot of provocations that pushed people to advocate gun control, and yet we have not gotten gun control. And I think that's because there's a basic libertarian sentiment that includes the Second Amendment that Americans uh, push against. Economics, giving people free things, and then it's hard to get them to give them up. Um, Regulating something that people don't like, and this stuff with the airlines, they're already fairly regulated, but now... One guy got dragged off an airplane, horrible video, and people, many people, want laws to stop that, whatever law that might be. Next, they will want a law to require that your airplane always be ready to go because there's a crew that got there on that plane that was coming into Louisville, and businesses have to balance all of that. A lot of it is, I think, this philosophical uh, operational divide. The liberty movement benefited a great deal from Lyndon Johnson and the Great Society because they passed things called model cities legislation and you looked around years later there weren't model cities and people said things aren't working. Let's do a little history here. 1937-38, FDR tries to pack the Supreme Court, tries to purge those then in in the Congress who opposed his measure to expand the Supreme Court and fill it with more congenial judges. He gets wiped out in 1938. Everyone he campaigned against wins. Between 1938 and 1964, there was no liberal legislating majority in Congress. Uh, Then the Goldwater campaign, I was one of the 27 million who voted for Goldwater, my first presidential vote, got so badly trounced that 
for two years, they had a liberal legislative majority again, and they overreached. And they set up a lot of things that people that made people skeptical about the gap between government rhetoric, the fancy labels on programs, and what they actually produced. And at this time, we began to get a more skeptical political science. James Q. Wilson, Nate Glazer, Pat Moynihan, all the rest. And Moynihan said, the point of social science isn't to tell us what to do, it's to measure results. And therefore, the point of social science turned out to be said, what's well, not working, which was almost everything. So we've had, in a sense, we've had a, 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 a long, decades-long now, tutorial in the limits of government and the failure to measure up to the titles we put on legislation. It's been said that the title of bills in Congress are like the titles of Marx Brothers movies. They tell you nothing about what's inside, <laughs> horse feathers and all the rest. Uh, so in that sense, yes, the country's more skeptical, but I don't see the fact that that skepticism exercises any inhibition on, on the legislative branch. Or the, the impulse of people to say, well, let's ask for more again. This time they'll get it right. Or indeed uh, restraining the executive branch from taking these vague laws and turning them into sweeping regulations governing every school system in the country and so on. Yeah, I mean, the, the most ominous and intractable problem is to take the title of Jane Healy's book from this great institution, The Cult of the Presidency. We have an absolutely magical superstition about the ability of presidents to cause things to happen. I will create jobs, I will bring peace to the Middle East, all of this stuff, that none of which is going to happen. Uh, but we, we expect the presidents to do this and are therefore have a kind of rancid disappointment, a little cloud hovering over the country at all times because presidents fail to live up to what they couldn't possibly reasonably be expected to do. Well, I had one thought about our failure. You know, our failure to, to, even though people tend to agree with us, we fail to influence them in certain ways. And I go back to that candelabra, menorah, troika, whatever we have. You know, everybody's, everybody's totally down with the individual dignity part. And they and forget responsibility. We'll never sell them on that. You know, they just have to sneak that in. You know, it's like like you know like, like mom putting spinach in the omelet. Um, it, it's but uh, uh, I think what we're, where we have failed uh, as libertarians is explaining, getting it across to people how market liberty is at the is the foundation of all liberty. And and and, and anybody who was active in the civil rights movement should absolutely understand that. I mean, first and foremost comes the ownership of yourself. And then comes the ownership of the works of your hands and your mind, you know, the ownership of, of, of what, you, what you produce. And we, we have a public that tends to confound property rights with uh, the marketplace. And this is a moment because of radical changes in the marketplace and because of changes in the economy, where people are really look at markets uh, and, and, and it's opaque to them. It's very, very hard to understand markets at the moment. 
the, the, the internet has done this for one thing, but but so so have derivatives and so have you know all sorts of complicated uh, 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 movements, hedge funds and so on, Black Shoals formula, this that and the other thing. It's all made this deeply confusing. What used to be the grocery and he bought it wholesale, sold it retail, everybody could understand it. Now the markets are very hard to understand, and we have to back up and like get back to that fundamental of it's about ownership of yourself and 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 investment in your in what you produce with your hands or your mind and also into the idea that listen um, the marketplace is not something that's evil or good or positive or negative it's a yardstick it's a bathroom scale it all the marketplace does is tell you what a given thing uh, what people are willing to pay for a given thing at a given moment in a given place. That's all it is. And you, you, can, you can say, well, we, you know, we, the market fails. The market doesn't fail any more than your bathroom scale fails. You know, I get on the bathroom scale and find I've gained 20 pounds. It is tempting to say that that is a scale failure. <laughs> <It's not. laughs> And, and, there, and there's nothing contrary to basic libertarian principles to do things, you know, when, when, when the marketplace, when, when market truths uh, uh, lead to difficulties for people. I mean, there's, no, there's nothing in our fundamental ideology that says we don't want something to keep people, you know, a system to keep people from being beggared by medical costs. You know, it's, it's my fundamental feeling that in a wealthy society like our own, that nobody should lose their house because of, 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 of medical costs. The boat, maybe, uh, but not the house. <laughs> uh, I mean, there, there are ways to mitigate you know, the, 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 the effects, but we've got to get people back to sort of those fundamentals or they lose hold of what the idea of liberty is and, and they get confused by things the government gives them for free, you know, and, uh, and, and all the rest of the you know, sort of goodies of the, uh, of the welfare state. Do you agree with that, George? Yeah. Uh, we, do, you think we, economic, do you think economic liberty and our failure to understand um, the marketplace is a, is a big problem for the overall picture? No, I think if, if you convinced Americans in western Pennsylvania... Tanara, Monongahela, Manessa, and all these towns that have been devastated by the disappearance of uh, that part of the American steel industry. And you said, well, look, this is the greater good is served by this. They'd say, I don't care. I don't live in the greater good. I live in Tanara. Okay. And, uh, and, and the interesting question four years from now is going to be when we have another election and nothing has changed in Tanara, Pennsylvania, uh, what are people going to want next? because they wanted protectionism. Protectionism won't work, obviously. It's not going to bring back steel jobs. Uh, what's the mood of the country going to be after four years when America isn't great again, as defined by those who say greatness is more people in manufacturing jobs? And what's going to happen when driverless cars, say, put a few million cab drivers and truck drivers out of work. And well, Marie Le Pen, they're voting as we speak in France. Marie Le Pen said the other day she is campaigning against the Uberization of the world. I mean, it's, it's now become a verb to Uber. It's, become, it's a noun, it's an adjective. It's, uh, but uh, she's right, she is campaigning against yeah. the Uberization. She's a Luddite, which in it, right. that's the ugly word for it. The attractive word is I'm fighting against the uberization of the world. Right? 
Well, I'll tell you what will happen with driverless trucks is they'll pass a law to put a truck driver in there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, the dove, dozing teamster. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's a big. I think it's a big challenge. I I do, um, but I'm interested in this cultural question, uh, and I want to just hear if you agree with me that that we have, that my profession of economics, has failed to communicate the central ideas of how the world works. I I have a chapter in one of my books called "The Goose That Lays the Golden Eggs," and if you don't understand how the anatomy and physiology of a goose works. You're prone to try to do some stupid things to get more golden eggs now rather than later and sacrifice some of that future for your children and grandchildren. And I view it as a twofold failure. We've failed to explain how it works, and we failed to romanticize it. I think people used to have a romantic view of how markets worked, like they had a romantic view of, say, the frontier spirit and what, what guns would do. And, and there's, there's a lot of danger of romance. But when you don't have a lot of time to think carefully about philosophy, which for the, it's for the best that most of us don't, uh, you need to have some fundamental tenets that you hold on to without thinking about very much. And those tenets have changed in America over the last 50 years. But your field, economics, is the only academic field that has moved to the right in the last 50 years. And it moved to the right, it seems to me, because people said, yes, markets, we understand markets generate information, when you don't have markets, you're ignorant. Uh, the key to this movement to the right was the universal acceptance of free trade. Everyone understands comparative advantage. They just don't like it when it doesn't serve their immediate or short-term ends. Well, as Milton Friedman liked to say, people in business are pro-capitalists except for their industry, because that's always an exception. Uh, so there's some, there's some truth to that. But I, actually, I think the academic part of my profession, economic policy has moved to the right in certain ways, but the academic part of my profession has, I feel, has gotten increasingly interested in tinkering, in identifying minutiae and various things that would justify intervention. And I think uh, it serves us well as economists, but not so well as citizens. We published a book here at Cato about 15, 20 years ago called What Do Economists Contribute? And it was it's a short book. <laughs> Pamphlet. It is a short book. Uh, but it was a collection of essays from some very distinguished economists as well as some current practicing economists who were less famous. Um, but it basically said the fundamental value of economists is to teach the average person about things like incentives, trade-offs, comparative advantage, and not to build new models and find technical tinkering opportunities. There may even be, some people say, a technical set of circumstances where protectionism could benefit a country. But the idea that a government, just take a look at a picture coming out of Washington of the people who would make the decision and ask, do you want them to find the one in a hundred places where protectionism might work. Obviously not. So, but, but it's more interesting, I think, to economists to do complicated math, to do regression analyses, to build a model, to come up with an interesting new twist. There are people who do it. And sometimes we say, who is the Henry Hazlitt of today? Well, one of the reasons we can't identify the Henry Hazlitt of the day is that there are multiple ones. Russ Roberts is clearly one, especially with his videos and his novels, but Don Boudreau at George Mason. 
every day writes a letter to the newspaper saying, you made an error in your economic analysis here. Um, Tyler Cowen does that. Um, uh, Stephen Levitt has written books, Stephen Landsberg. So there are a lot of Henry Hazlitt's around. We just need more people to see them. And one way you do that is you take them off the printed page and turn them into video and uh, podcasts. You know, one thing that really puzzles me about, uh, you know, the steel towns you were mentioning, I grew up in Toledo, Ohio. And I don't quite figure out, I can't quite figure out when it is that the American people uh, uh, forgot a very fundamental principle of America, which is knowing when to get out of town. Just get out of town. I took a look at Toledo when I graduated from graduate school. So did all my friends when they graduated from college. We took a look at Toledo, and we don't live there anymore. <laughs> there wasn't anything to do. I know about, I know one kid who inherited the local bank, you know, and I know another kid who inherited the local funeral, largest chain of funeral homes, which is a big business in Toledo. Uh, and uh, also a third kid uh, who inherited a, a chain of uh, nursing homes, also a big business in Toledo. They stayed. The rest of us left. I mean, get out of town. This, this country was based on a lot of kinds of mobility, not only vertical mobility, but horizontal mobility. You know, and if you can't get up, get out. And uh, when did we start turning to, the, to a presidential candidate to fix things in our rotten little town that anybody in their right mind would have left? <laughs> well, you're, you're quite right. I mean, the, the Jode family in Grapes of Wrath uh, loaded all their material possessions on their tin Lizzie and headed west. That's it. Uh, there are, however, reasons why people are less apt to do that today, and one of them is that they are enmeshed in a web of welfare provisions that root them in West Virginia. It's very difficult, it turns out, to just get up and move because you're leaving behind all kinds of entitlements and relationships you've developed with various social service providers which tend to anchor people and keep them there uh, near their supplier of oxycotton. Yeah, well, that's a, um, that's a, it really is a trench comic comment. I, I think that's a very deep problem. I'm going I'm to look at the other side of it, though, and, and get your thoughts, which is, uh, in uh, yesterday's uh, Wall Street Journal, Ben Sass had a piece talking about the fact that I think it was uh, the proportion of people 25 to 29 living with their parents has reached, I think, 25%. I might be wrong about the number, but it's a largish number by historical standards, and it's up dramatically from a decade ago. And we had an episode um, Recently, with Eric Hurst talking about these issues, it's a it's a it's an interesting social phenomenon. My simple explanation, my back of the envelope explanation for this is that uh, marriage is dying out in America. If you're not married and you're young, you want to live in a place with lots of other young people. If you're married, you're happy living out in suburbia or even in Toledo. But if you're not married, you want to be where there's lots of young folks. And now, of course, that's also where economic opportunity is in cities. And so cities are magnets that they weren't 40 years ago, 25 years ago. Huge demand by young people, to, socially educated young people, to live in cities, pushing up the demand for housing. 
Cities have, over the last 40 years, passed a lot of regulations that make it hard to build new houses. So in cities like ours, Washington, D.C., or my sister city, uh, San Francisco, or in New York City, the largest, most attractive places for young people to live are increasingly expensive, frighteningly expensive. So if you want to live in those cities, you're best off living with your parents uh, or living near your parents. Uh, But it's hard to leave Toledo when... Even Cleveland might be a little more expensive than it used to be. What do you what do you think of that problem for mobility? Didn't stop me. <laughs> I didn't have you know I, I yeah, didn't have any money. It was just you know it was time to leave. You know you figure out how to you know uh, is you know as you say frighteningly uh, expensive. I always found you could live in any city you want if you were willing to put up with the frightening stuff. Uh, I lived on 2nd Street uh, between Avenue B and Avenue C in the 1970s, or Firebase Baker and Firebase Charlie, as we called them, you know? I mean, <laughs> but my apartment cost $50 a month. <laughs> so, you know, you had to balance not, it the fear. It doesn't anymore. That, that's my point. Well, not uh, there. but there's... Unless you have 10 or 12 roommates, which is tricky. No, there's some place in the Bronx you can yeah. live that cheaply. Sure. Yeah. George? Well, uh, Things the market will speak, and as uh, Manhattan became expensive, Brooklyn gentrified. Now Brooklyn has gentrified, and people are moving to Nashville. Uh, and Nashville is exceedingly expensive nowadays. Uh, so this too is the market working, and people will move. Uh, but again, we're going to get a more stratified society as people, those capable of moving. Mm. Those who have, A, the resources, and B, the sort of pep, get up and go, will move. And those who who don't will stay there. So we're going to have a society increasingly, getting into the swing of my pessimism here. Uh, I mean, it's clear we, we have an increasingly cognitive stratification in society. And uh, we're going to now, that will reinforce these other trends between those who are mobile, those who leave Toledo, and those who don't. Yeah. David, you want anything? One of the problems with complicated regulation and complicated tax systems is that people with high cognitive skills are disproportionately able to maneuver all these bureaucracies and paperwork and tax forms and so on. So one of the things that we should be focusing on is getting rid of regressive regulations that particularly hurt um, people who are poorer. Uh, One of those is land use regulations that make a lot of these attractive cities more expensive. Um, Occupational licensing that is now blocking off uh, something like 25 or 30 percent of uh, occupations. There are a lot of jobs that people could do without a lot of education, but there are written tests and procedures to go through in order to get those jobs. So those kinds of things, I think, uh, are useful. But I agree with George that I think that the web of government benefits makes it partly that it holds you there because you're enmeshed in it, partly just makes it easier. The people in Kentucky and Tennessee who couldn't get jobs in the Depression, one of the things they did was they went north to Detroit. And maybe you don't have to do that now if you have a safety net. And I think one thing might be if most couples have two incomes, then the loss of one income is not the devastating loss that it was to the Okies or the Kentuckians. Yeah, that's, that's true. Um, but, again, it's, it's going to be interesting to see socially, it's beyond the scope of this, of this conversation, how 
uh, the institution of marriage and uh, relations between uh, between people are going to evolve over the next twenty and forty and fifty years. But I'm going to switch us back to a to a much more narrow to- uh, topic, which is think tanks. So we're sitting here at the Cato Institute, an illustrious institution for for forty years now. I work at the Hoover Institution. Uh, but I've benefited tremendously from Cato and other think tanks around the country and around the world. Uh, how important are we? Do we matter? Are we just a nice way to miss a lovely afternoon? We're all sitting here together, and it's pleasant to have intellectual ideas and print and occasionally in other media. But um, how important is this, this enterprise? What's, how important is the think tank in America, which is a somewhat, somewhat distinctive American phenomenon, how much has that contributed to... I'm not interested in, in legislation. I'm more interested in the culture and the intellectual environment that we live in and sustaining certain ideas. I mean, if we went back, a lot of people would attribute the changes that I think George was alluding to to the Mont Pelerin Society, a, a sort of primitive pre-think tank think tank of, of smart, passionate people who felt that ideas mattered. Um, how are we doing? How, how's the think tank movement doing, and what is, what is our role to play over the, next, over the next 40 years? The bigger the government gets, the more government there is to analyze, yeah. and the more governmental results to uh, assess. So in that sense, the think tank is more important. Uh, furthermore, Henry Kissinger said one of the lessons he learned from his service in Washington was that you run down the intellectual capital you bring that no one has time to recharge their intellectual capital. Uh, And I think that's true. I I used to say that my friend, he was my best friend, Pat Monahan wrote more books while he was in the Senate than his colleagues had read. Uh, And and the the, the sasses of the world are very rare, and and, uh, his new book, by the way, is absolutely sensationally good. but people here are so busy. Jim Buckley was a senator from 71 through 77. And he told me at one point, he said that the workload, he thought, doubled in his six years. Because when the Auburn, New York fire department's roof is a federal problem, and it is now, I mean, because there's now a federal firehouse roof program, uh, that uh, there's just no end of the claims made on your time and they get handed a three-by-five card every morning with their their, uh, schedule and their three things at 11 o'clock and they can't be at two of them. Uh, So what this means, that the general harried nature of those in government throws them back more and more on their staff. Their staff are 28 years old, they're fresh out of law school and they don't know anything about anything and therefore there is... A, lo- a growing vacuum, as it were, and it should be filled by the think tanks. The um, yes, actually, I was going to make exactly the same point uh, uh, that George was. The more complexity, the more need for us, and uh, the less thoughtful the politicians, whether it's because of time or some other factor, uh, less thoughtful the politicians become, the more the thinking needs to be done for them. I would personally like to see more outreach um, on campus. Um, I think that uh, so, um, AEI seems to be doing a really good job on that. I would like to see a sort of cater, Cato the Younger uh, uh, <laughs> out there because we, 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 we have the kids 
full attention on certain libertarian issues. They are very libertarian in the sense that you were talking about how the glass is half full. You know, they, 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 you know, they despise any of the kind of oppressions, that, 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 uh, historical oppressions that America, uh, uh, you know, that, 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 that you could fault America for. Um, but they don't sort of realize the connection between that and, 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 and economic liberty and, 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 and indeed personal responsibility. So in that respect, that's the thing I would like to see happen in, in the future. But I, I, th I think, you know, as I said in my speech, I think it's now more than ever uh, uh, that we're needed. Think tanks are certainly a booming industry. Um, the professor at the University of Pennsylvania who studies and counts them has about 8,000 on his list. Um, I'm not sure what percentage are in the United States, but it absolutely is a very U.S.-based phenomenon that to some extent has spread. Tax laws in the U.S. plus our Tocquevillian tradition of people getting together and doing things for themselves matter. To, to a great extent, the rise of the think tank was because there was a rise in government of demand for creating legislation, building new models. All these New Deal and especially Great Society programs came out of some of the early think tanks. Then in the 1970s, there was a surge in think tanks based on free market principles. And they, I think, and I think particularly of Cato and Heritage, but there are others, um, had more of an attitude, rather than simply building models and handing them to legislators to implement, of changing public opinion. And so Cato was founded in San Francisco. We moved to Washington, not so much because this is where the politicians are, but because this is where the journalists are, because the politicians are here. And therefore, if we wanted to communicate in a world before the internet, you want to be talking to the journalists, you want them to take your message out there. One of the things I think that spurs the development of think tanks is the impression that academia is getting increasingly esoteric, specialized, removed from normal uh, concerns, not exactly of everyday people, but even of everyday governance. And therefore, you can get ideas in a think tank that are not really coming from the academy, but think tanks also serve as a transmission belt. So to the extent that there are good ideas uh, being developed by economists or international relations theorists or political scientists in universities uh, or law professors in particular, we can give them a platform and a voice that they wouldn't have just through academic journals and so on. 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60, back when Kennedy came to town, it was considered really required to have ornaments from academia in your, your administration. Schlesinger, Galbraith, the Rostow brothers, the Bundy brothers. Uh, no longer. No one thinks of, of the uh, academia as anything other than a self-marginalized, faintly ludicrous uh, exotic flower that, uh, that has no particular bearing. And that has had the good effect of uh, elevating the alternative intellectual infrastructure which, of which Cato and AEI and Heritage and all the rest are a part and countless state-based think tanks. So, again, the market's working in a sense. The American people today have a voracious appetite for reading American history, particularly the founding period. 
I don't know, is Ron Chernow in, in an ac- academic position? I doubt it. The man who wrote, uh, wrote Hamilton, the, the, the musical. Uh, David McCullough. David McCullough, all the rest. The, the, most of the most widely read, serious history is not being written in academia. And that's, again, a good sign. We just need a musical called Jefferson, I think. <laughs> Um, Hayek. Yeah, or Hayek. Hayek. Hayek's a better idea. You heard it here first. <laughs> well, we've got rap videos yeah. on Hayek. I think George should combine with somebody to write a Madison. That's right. <laughs> I, I did have an idea for a, a Keynes uh, Hayek musical, but it's, uh, you know, building on our rap videos that I did with John Popola. But that's uh, just a gleam in, in my eye. Um, exciting, though, isn't it? I mean, it would, it would, it takes a hot, <laughs> what was your phrase? What kind of an academic, a hot house sec? Yeah, some, some exotic fragile flower to think that's a good idea. But anyway, um, I want you to give you a second here to think for a minute about legislation you might envision. Uh, we're not allowed to talk about pending legislation here on Econ Talk, but if you were dictator for a day and could pass one piece of legislation, what might that be? I'll go first so you can think about it. So for years, mine has been um, to get government out of the schooling business uh, totally, not, not, not with vouchers, not with charter schools, but to allow private schools to exist and to allow scholarships and other foundations to create schools for people who can't afford a private school. I think that would be the single biggest thing to make uh, our country better. Uh, and freer, and uh, that would be mine. And it, so the rules of the game of this game are you have to pick something that's imaginable. That's not literally imaginable for most people. <laughs> you really can't imagine it. But, but <clears throat> the rule is you can't say, I wish people were nicer. So that's, that's against the rules. But if you can pick an actual public policy that you think would, you think is important, that, or the, it could just be your pet peeve. Uh, anybody want to go first? Well, I, uh, I endorse your plan. Uh, <laughs> One can envision, I think we can at least imagine, a constitutional amendment that provided for a separation of economy and state as complete as the separation of church and press and state, which is to say we still have arguments about exactly where the line of separation of church and state or separation of news and state is, but separation of economy and state. I have a much simpler one. doesn't require a constitutional amendment. Easily done by statute. Could be done by a Republican Congress next month. And tax withholding. There's no way the government could collect half of what it does if people had to write a check at the end of the year. Since people would not have this much money at the end of the year, we could make it monthly. You have to write a check out for your taxes every month. Average people would be having to write, what, a $1,000 check at the end of every month? I believe that would put some discipline in Washington. Every parent has heard coming through their phone the FICA scream when, uh, <laughs> when your child goes out and gets a job and calls yes. you the next yes. month and says, what the hell is FICA? <laughs> and why is it swallowing my income? Yeah. I, I would suggest two things. I'm, I'm still, although I know there are costs, the cost to everything. I'm still for term limits. Uh, that uh, is the best way to break the nexus between the. Uh, it's a Madisonian ch- change in the sense that all it does is tamper with incentives. 
changes the incentive for going into public office and it changes the incentives for behaving while in public office. Or, another way to get term limits is to say that Anyone in Congress when the deficit is more than 1% of GDP is ineligible to run for re-election. Ooh, yes, uh, that would be a good one. So that either you'll get term limits or you'll get a balanced budget. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking very much along the, the, the line. I, 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 everybody, all of the ideas sound very good to me. But I've also felt for years, I mean, I have to, a self-employed person, I do write a check every month. I mean, we used to do it quarterly and, you know, we figured out that it was less painful to do it. Still painful. Yeah, so we do write a check. And uh, I I was going to do the same thing with the deficit. At the end of the year, uh, that uh, whatever the government overspent, um, all the taxpayers would have to pay for it, a flat rate, you know. Uh, It would be, whatever that percent, whatever got spent, more than came in, Everybody get a bill for it. Everybody in the United States would get a bill for it. We call it the pass the hat bill. Pass the hat bill. Came up a little short this year. All of us belong to civic organizations and know this one or have kids at private schools. A little shortfall this year. Except you wouldn't have a choice. Let me say I have another plan which I proposed in the Washington Post a year or two ago. And that is that at the end of your 1040 form, it says, we would like you to send this much. And on the next page, you list everything the government does, and you write in how much you're willing to pay for it. But this only produces discipline if at the bottom you are allowed to write in how much you want refunded to you. Now, I mentioned this idea to a good friend of mine who is a knowledgeable, longtime Washington observer, and said, you know, I think this would result in the government getting less money. Uh, How much do you think? And he said, 10 or 15 percent. And I said, yeah, I think that's right. Why don't, we, why don't we try it? Because I, of course, think that the first year it would be about a 25% send it back to me, and the second year it would be 50% send it back to me. Um, the obvious complication is the government does 800,000 things, and how do you group them on this form? Uh, I'm going to ask an awkward question, which is uh, some, somebody uh, once said that I think it's their Twitter description that they have strong opinions, weak, uh, strong opinions weakly held. And, and I like sometimes to think of myself that way, that I, I feel very passionately about what I believe in. But I wonder, you know, maybe I'm wrong. It's possible. It's not pleasant to think that. But maybe I have an incorrect perception of the world. But I've devoted a good chunk of my life, as have the other people on this panel, to making the case for a certain philosophical view of how the world works and what would make it better. And you have to ask yourself, why haven't we convinced more people? Right? We're, we're pretty, I think most of us up here are pretty confident. We think we're probably right. And yet we must confront the fact that in the marketplace of ideas, we have a bigger share than we had 40 years ago. That's to be committed, saluted. You could argue that the trend is positive, that we're going to, we're going to do better. Uh, but it's interesting that our... Our successes are limited. Now, Hayek had a very attractive idea, explanation for that. I'm going to leave that aside for the moment. But I'm curious what you gentlemen think is the reason for our, uh, our, our, our failure to some extent. 
Anybody want to go first? George? Yeah, well, what, what, no one what, wants to go what, first. What we're arguing is that in the long term, the view we have of how the world works and how the institutions of society therefore should be structured, in the long run, it is in our own good. But uh, our argument is that capitalism doesn't just make us better off, it makes us better And it makes us better by enforcing thrift, industriousness, deferral of gratification, all of which are unpleasant at some point or other. So uh, it's it's a choice between short-term gratification and long-term, and the short-term is going to win every time, and we're not preaching short-term. And there's no way to change that. PJ? I just, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there's every reason for nobody to listen to me, but I don't think anybody listens to anybody anymore. You know, I think we have created a world where everyone is on broadcast and no one is on received. Be my explanation. There is what Hayek called the atavism of social justice, the idea that our brains evolved through many, many millennia in a world of small groups, an extended family, a clan. And in that small group, in your family, you generally practice something along the lines of from each according to his ability to each according to his needs. And that seems to have gotten deeply ingrained within us. And it's hard to understand. And it's a good thing, by the way. Yes, that's right. Within the family, even within a small group of people who love or intimately depend on each other, it makes sense. Trying to get beyond that, see the larger world, what Hayek called the great society, has to operate by different rules. I think that's a real challenge, and that's been a problem for us. Then it's probably also a problem that we don't seem to teach civics um, and the basic values of America as well. And economics is counterintuitive. To tell people that a minimum wage law will not help people who are currently making $7 an hour, that is a tough thing to explain. Yeah, I think the thought I was thinking of, the Hayekian thought, I think I have this right, is that, is that he said that intellectuals, because that's the other part of this argument, you know, why is it the most smart people are not on our side? It's one thing to say the average person, but the smartest people tend to be more interventionist, more socialist, and his view was, well, they benefit from it. I think that's true. I fear that's part of my uh, profession's uh, attraction to interventionism and the constant observing of market failure and so on is it does increase the demand for our services. <clears throat> so I always, my view is that taking economist advice should be, should do it carefully because we have a conflict of interest most of the time. Uh, my other thought, which is, relates to what you just said, David, is that it comes back to what I said earlier. I think we fail dismally, bad choice of word, but I think we fail dismally in making the cultural case for liberty and for economic freedom. Um, I think back to a, a powerful piece that uh, James Buchanan wrote in the Wall Street Journal. I think I think it's called The Soul of Liberalism. Do I have that right? Anybody remember that piece? But it's an incredible piece where he basically says, you know, we've lost the moral high ground. We're, we don't make the case that freedom is, is the right thing. We might make the case that it works. We make the case often, to me, uh, as a left-brain activity for analytical people who like equations and charts and facts and graphs. But uh, we don't speak to the soul, and we don't speak to the heart. And I think if we don't do that, we're in a great deal of trouble. So I'll let you gentlemen react to that argument about culture, and then we're probably done. Well, I certainly agree with that. And for me, the moral case for freedom is 
what fundamentally matters. I sometimes say in speeches after going through arguments for liberty, as for me, I hold this truth to be self-evident. It is wrong to initiate force against innocent people. That's the fundamental value, I think. At a think tank, a public policy research institute, we inevitably spend most of our time talking about costs and benefits of particular policies. But we do want to make a moral case. Don't you want to be free? Doesn't everyone want to be free? Isn't that what it means to be human instead of some other species? PJ? Yeah, no, that's, that's you know, one raising kids, you know, is that I, I try to get them back to, to those fund, fundamental principles, you know, which is, you know, keep your hands to yourself. Uh, <laughs> along with, uh, you know, um, pull your pants up, turn your hat around, get a job, you know, that's a, also an important uh, uh, um, That's a longer bumper sticker, though. That's a longer bumper sticker, yeah. Uh, it, but it, it is that, you know, and again, I come back to that triad, you know, is that you, you want to be, if, if you want to be treated with individual dignity, you have to treat others with individual dignity. If you've got, if you want individual liberty of your own, you have to allow it to other people, you know. And if you want other people to, see, the last one works the opposite way. If you want other people to take responsibility, you've got to take responsibility. And so I think it is possible to, to, to reach the, 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 the heart with libertarianism, but it's always going to be, as I said last night, it's always going to be a tough uh, political sell because, you know, the, the really good, uh, 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 the, the honest pol uh, libertarian politician would stand up on the stump and say, I can do less for you. <laughs> I can do less for you. Yeah. You want less? I'm a guy. Yeah. Less we can. Yeah. yeah. Less we can. There. Yeah. There's our bumper sticker. Yeah. Less it actually can. was the bumper sticker of the libertarian candidate in uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, a few years ago. Uh, it's not enough to tell people, to ask them, do you want to be free? Because you have to, t you have, to have the argument about what freedom is. Uh, on our college campuses today, there is a powerful movement, it's winning, that insists on freedom from speech, that freedom from the inconvenience of people annoying you with ideas that you find uncongenial. They, we still have to make the argument, we'll never not have to make the argument, that against positive freedom, that is, you are freer when you have good health care, that you're freer, not just healthier, not just happier, but freer when you have... Um, regulation of the trucking industry, uh, that argument never ends. No, it absolutely doesn't. I think the very hardest thing, for, for me at least, to have gotten tried to get across to my own kids is the difference between negative rights and positive rights and how to explain to them that negative is good here and positive is lousy. You know, and it's, it's all about, you know, the rights you want are, the, are, are, are you know, the rights to be left alone, not the, not the, the you know, obligation for other people to give you things because, you know, Goldwater, the government that is big enough to give you everything is big enough to take it all away. But I think it may be that sometimes our rhetoric about don't tread on me and the right to be left alone sends a signal to people that we don't care about other people, that we don't want to be part of a family or a community. Uh, Students for Liberty has tried to deal with this by producing bumper stickers that say, 
don't tread on others or don't tread on anyone because it's not just about me it is about a principle that shouldn't tread on others and and you know I'm absolutely in favor of the fundamental right of a free person is the right to be left alone but I think there are a lot of people who hear the right to be left alone meaning the right to be left alone and nobody wants that and rightfully so I think the biggest um tragedy of of the liberty movement is the embracing of selfishness rather than self-interest. Self-interest is a human trait. Selfishness is not a virtue. And uh, Ayn Rand wrote a book called The Virtue of Selfishness, which I read at, I think, 19 and thought it was fantastic. Uh, As a 62-year-old, I think it's not the right way to be a fully uh, connected human being to other people. And I do think we have a marketing problem there. George, you want to say one other thing? Nope, we're done. Okay. Well, I want to thank our guests, uh, David Bowes, PJ Rourke, and George Will. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday. <laughs>